0: Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from space kraken to giant sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash isaacarthur and use my code isaacarthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Let's go ahead and get started with our questions. Kind of makes me wish we could know when David's make cocoa bombs instead. (laughs) For anyone who saw last week, Sarah is back in the studio with us today. Uh, David Thomas, who'd been with us uh, last month filling in for, he was actually live streaming from his parents' house today making cocoa bombs with his mom.
1: Hot chocolate and marshmallows and sprinkles, and it looked a lot more fun than... uh,
0: than technical glitches. Now, of course, this is far more fun than drinking hot chocolate. If you don't already have a drink and a snack such as hot chocolate, you can grab one of those right now. But we're going to go ahead and get started with our first question from last month. And then we'll get to your current ones.
1: Okay, well, we had a question from Thomas Perkins that he wanted to know what your thoughts are for a realistic and long-term solution for mitigating radiation dangers for space colonization.
0: Uh, That's always kind of a tricky thing in the sense that we have the... The core issue with radiation in space is that there's no atmosphere blocking it out, but it is always about thickness. Magnetic fields can help with ionized particles, for instance, but magnetic fields like the Earth have do not in any way stop gamma radiation. Right? Oxygen stops gamma radiation. Hydrogen stops gamma radiation. Nitrogen stops gamma radiation. Stuff in between it and you stops it. Uh, beta radiation can be stopped by a magnetic field because it's just an electron or a positron, um, but by and large... Anything that we can do with a spaceship, we can, you know, in terms of a planet, we can replicate the spaceship. In this case, we just need to think a hull. As you get bigger, heavier spaceships, because you're not building tiny things held together by tin foil, the square mat, the sorry, the square cube, lets you start having thicker shielding without it being proportionally larger chunk of your budget. And you can also start doing things like putting your stuff that's radiation proof, like water, on the outside. So you put all your storage tanks for water in your floor of like a spinning spaceship. That's more or less how you get around it, is you put an electromagnetic field around the ship if you want to, but mostly you just put in an awful lot of mass between you and the outside.
1: Okay, well, it seems that uh, we have a lot of folks joining us on the main page. That is where the live stream is streaming from at the moment. Mm -hmm. And we have a question from Medievalists. If we aimed a probe to another star, should we not choose a star that is trailing behind our own system? wouldn't that be faster than sending it to Alpha Centauri?
0: Alpha Centauri is not part of our group uh, in terms of things that we formed with nationally. When this system formed, we had some stars we were moving with. Some of those were still form- moving with, others were kind of intersecting. And Alpha Centauri is not one of those, so it does actually have a speed relative to us that's fairly significant. But to be honest, it's not that much compared to what the distance is. If you want to get you know, the probe there fairly quickly, it's the best one to send it to, I'd still say, or Proxima Centauri anyway, um, but about the same difference. But really, any of the stars in our local area, none of them are moving that fast that a space probe that could get there in a lifetime or two uh, wouldn't more or less ignore that speed. It's not that big of a difference. If you're trying to get one there at the current speed of or yes, it matters, but there's no point in sending a probe to a star that's 70,000 years getting there uh, when it's only four light years away. Just wait, and in sometime the next 70,000 years, you'll get better technology for getting stuff there.
1: So we have a a question here with a super chat, and I had the name and it went away, so maybe we'll come back to that one. (laughs) Um, We have a question here from Michael McKesney, and he says, Isaac, in the past you've said you don't want to go into space yourself, but if you were offered a seat on the all-civilian Inspiration4 space launch, would you accept? Before you answer, the answer is, only if you take me with you.
0: Only, yeah, well, only if I take my wife with me, which (laughs) says it has me fairly safe. Uh... (laughs) I am not super anxious to get into space uh, any more than I am to go on a cruise ship. Those are hobbies of the folks' joy. I might turn out that really like them. I was never anxious to go whitewater rafting. We went to, what was it, August? I loved it. I loved it, and I was half blind the entire time because I couldn't bring any kind of special glass along, and I'm, like, 2200 vision. So, it was a lot of fun. If you haven't gone whitewater rafting, go whitewater rafting, but safely. Um, if you haven't gone to space before, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy it or not. You probably ask me, the astronauts, they all say they love it, so... It's something hopefully in about 30, 40 years will actually be no more expensive than an expensive cruise line ticket. But even then, we're looking forward to the day when it's no more expensive than an airline ticket.
1: Plan our summer vacation for 20 years out.
0: Yeah. You know, <laughs> so the summer vacation for 2041. <laughs> you
1: know? Sounds good. Okay. I'll be yeah.
0: 61 then. I might like space. slow gravity.
1: Warani <laughs> <laughs> says, how far do you think we will reach into space this century? In most of our time spans. I I don't know Um, if he's looking at my time span or your time span, but...
0: Yeah, yeah, I suppose technically if you wanted to get to Andromeda this century, it's hypothetically possible from your own relative time perspective. uh, You just have to go really, really fast. Um, This century, I would expect us to actually have a decent chance of launching an interstellar ship. I wouldn't expect it to arrive this century, but I wouldn't put it past it. Probably a probe, a man vessel is probably a little bit further ahead. As to us, if by the end of the century we don't have a base on the moon, and a permanent significant base on the moon, and we haven't mined an asteroid or two and haven't set up several space stations that have people on them pretty much all the time, then odds are pretty good that sort of thing isn't happening because it turns out to be technically impossible. We can never really rule that out until we've done it, but that was what I expect this century. I I can't imagine it taking longer than that.
1: Matt three 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 says, Could you create a video about that kind of intelligent alien that could have a higher level of consciousness?
0: We're actually doing an episode on sentience, um coming up in what, middle of middle of March. So it might be one of the ones that's been playing up in the background, assuming they have been. Um and uh is out of the image slash over has but up there. Um Trying to figure out what the line is between things like sapiens, higher consciousness, lesser consciousness. We even come up with the term in the, in the episode; it's uh, called pythian, just to kind of bridge the gap between sentience and sapiens. Um, trying to talk about something like that's kind of tricky because we don't have any examples to look at, but it would be interesting to speculate on what it would be like if something had a higher than human level of consciousness. Um, but it's so hard to say.
1: Hmm. I, I am going to call out this one. It's a super chat from Curator Callister and thank you for your donation. He says, hey Isaac, I just wanted to let you know that your content has really helped me through quarantine. We've had quite a few friends that ended up in that situation this year (laughs) and uh, glad that it's helping. His question is, what are the top three most realistic sci-fi works of fiction? I'm imagining he's watching quite a few of them at the moment. Yeah,
0: hmm. I guess it would depend on if you're going by books, movies, or TV, and it's gonna be a different answer for each of them. It also depends on what you mean by realism. Your classic top three sci-fi novel series pretty much always pop up on there as the favorites so Isaac Asimov's Foundation, Frank Herbert's Dune, and Orson Scott Card's Endor's Game. Um, the In terms of realism, they each have beautiful realism in certain aspects, but then they have really horrible flaws. Like, the whole concept of, of the foundation is psychohistory, a math that can predict the future in broad strokes. That is just not possible, right? That violates... All sorts of basic mathematical and physical concepts. Then you got Dune, an entire series based off the idea that a civilization that has anti-gravity and faster and light travel cannot bring water to a planet when water is the most common molecule in the universe and would probably be hanging out in the outskirts of every single solar system. Uh, then we've got and uh, Scott, oh, Scott, Carl's game was the idea that you could run a military complex strategy across tons of systems by using um i was maybe a 14 year old <laughs> a bunch of other teenagers so sliding scales of realism um most realistic television show it really wouldn't be star trek it used to always be say star wars star trek and trek was more sweeper one i really don't see the basis for that um, but you get a certain amount of realism on so many of them i'd say movie wise sunshine minus the last 30 minutes and the basic premise very good movie, for instance, from 2007. The Moon, 2009, that was a very good one. But we would go through all of them. Um, Interstellar has its points. I, most of them, though, they've just got core fundamental flaws to them that me has to just call them out as very scientific.
1: Skyler so Reek says, What would a Cardshift three civilization in another galaxy have affect us politically if we discovered them tomorrow?
0: Um, if we discovered a Kardashev three civilization in another galaxy, I, I suppose it is important that it be in another galaxy because it was in our galaxy. A uh, Kardashev three civilization, for those who don't know, is a galaxy-spanning empire, one that's not only settled every solar system but Dyson sphered every single star. So you can't see any star, you know, night sky objects in your galaxy if you have gone Kardashev three, except maybe other galaxies. We can see Andromeda with the naked eye, for instance. Um, one that was actually in another galaxy I say Andromeda or or even at all you know that that civilization was ancient before we were building pyramids you know that that civilization even ignoring light like you know that that thing was millions of years old when that light left you and they were already millions of years old that changes your perspective but at the same time I don't know that it really do much more than shock us for a little bit because it confirms certain options Oh, so because I know someone's going to bring it up, read Dune. I do know that in books three and beyond, he does say that there's those sandworm trout that uh, encapsulate the water on the desert planet and sink it down in there. But this it it has to be consistent for book one, I think. But I count.
1: So while you're talking about shows that you've <laughs> seen, uh, Wargiver, thank you for your contribution. He wants to know if you've ever seen Ghost in the Shell.
0: The movie, the cartoon movie I've seen. Um, I've not read the manga. I've not seen the newer version. that has got... Uh, uh, I can't remember what name in it. I've seen the the How old cartoon. How realistic like, do you 90s. think
1: that the technology in it is?
0: Um, A lot of it really is. In some ways, that's one of the more realistic uh, animes that I've seen, which, to be fair, I've not seen very many. Um, basic concept there being you've got cyborgs and people can hop around bodies. We see a similar thing with the Altered Carbon series, is that the mind is moving around digitally or not and can be manipulated. If you can move a mind around and you can send signals around to it, then you should be able to manipulate it digitally as well. And so that whole series kind of looks at the question of how malleable is this concept we call personality? Uh, How solid an object is you? And that, of course, is something we're going to to find out uh, in this next century or two, I'm quite sure. And hopefully the answer will be much less dystopian than we see in in shows like those.
1: Randy Smith says, if any of our new nearby stars go nova and aim a gamma-ray burst at us, how far underground would you have to be to escape at least the radiation? Uh,
0: in your basement. In your basement. Gamma-ray burst. I mean, it depends on how tight it is. If our sun was suddenly a supernova candidate that was able to do a gamma-ray burst, a um then yeah, we'd have to be pretty deep underground to survive that direct hit. Uh, but it, it is still a cone that widens out. Anything that's even four light years away, it's going to rip the atmosphere off in terms of ionizing it. But you yourself would not be killed by the radiation even just under a meter of Earth. So
1: so can we make an entire galaxy a ship by building an engine around the black hole in the center of the Milky Way?
0: I wouldn't do it that way, um, it's possible, but uh, you got to keep in mind the black hole in the center of the galaxy is not really the the thing in which the galaxy is wrapped around, it just happens to be where that black hole would tend to naturally be at as a very big object that uh, would form more commonly there. Um, the galaxy outmasses that black hole by a factor of about 100,000 to 1, so don't think of it as too much of an anchor. Um, not a bad place to be dumping mass into to try to push a galaxy along, but it's not really a good gravitational anchor in of itself. You want to move a galaxy, you want to move large chunks of it that are gravitationally bound to each other. You don't really want to leave bits of it behind. Um, and uh, in that kind of context, see the Fleet of Stars episode for a better look at that, but you really want to be trying to move the whole thing, each star as a Chicago Thrust, kind of situation or a black hole-based type engine.
1: I think you kind of elaborated on this question from Merv Johnson already, uh, but thank you, Merv, for your uh, contribution here. And he says back in the Clark Tech episodes, you mentioned different types of mass, inertial, active gravity, passive gravity. Can you elaborate a little bit more on those here? Sure.
0: Um, This cup, uh, which going to make footage to interesting example this cup that Jason and Christina bought me when they were down at Disneyland some years back, um, has mass that is inertial, gravitational and active and passive gravitational if we think of it these things we say the mass for them is all the same because they seem to act as the same quality to us in a naive sense but if I want to move this cup I have to push on it and something resists to give this cup inertia I have to push on it And something resists. If I were to double this cup or drink more of the coffee out of it, it would be easier to push. That's inertial mass, how much it resists being pushed on by, you know, accelerating forces. Active gravitational mass is how much it pulls other objects. So, like, it's exerting a little bit of a pull of gravity on me right now, right? It yanks at me. And then there's passive gravitational mass, which is how much it gets yanked on by me. And we have no real reason to think that these should be the same quantities, but they seem to be, right? We figure they got to be linked together at a very core level, but what that actually is to us a theoretical level, we don't know yet. But they are three separate quantities. If, why they're linked together, presumably there is a good reason for why they are the same. We don't know it yet, but they are three separate quantities. How much this thing resists being pushed, right? How much it pulls on the Earth, and how much the Earth pulls on it, or beyond it, and vice versa. Those are your three types of mass.
1: Yurghaz Verat says, so my question is relating to how gravity stretches space and time mm-hmm. in relation to distance growing between galaxies. Is it possible that the actual distance is not increasing, but that the density... And I just lost the rest of it. So make up whatever you want for the rest of the ending.
0: <laughs> Do you remember who it was? I think I might have it in the chat. Yurghaz
1: right. Farat.
0: So unfortunately today. a uh, couple of the f- folks who help us out on the live stream are not available today. Oh, although... uh, they
1: all popped on. We have. Oh, they? Uh, the owl installer. Oh, okay.
0: All right. Is that that one's not in there?
1: Well, it was a. Uh, it says continued, but it doesn't continue.
0: Oh, sorry. Uh, so. What was the question? Again? It was about.
1: It was about how gravity stretches space and time in relation to distance.
0: Okay, I'm guessing the question on that one is: Is it possible that instead of space between galaxies expanding, we are getting compacted? Ag things are shrinking in size or that in some fashion the light is getting slowed down as it passes through their mind. we did talk about that a little bit more in the dark matter technology episode without knowing this was the question obviously I can't only kind of sort of answer it um, but uh, we don't know if the universe is getting bigger or everything the universe is getting smaller that's one of those um, questions where it, it, it's, the answer is effectively the same anyway you could never tell if you're shrinking everything else is getting bigger or not it's it's How would you know? Um, On the other hand, is something causing light to slow down between galaxies, for instance, to cause that effect? Um, We don't know. Um, We haven't been outside of galaxies to test this stuff. I really hasn't just say no. We have no reason to suspect that's the case, though. We say things like, why is the universe expanding? Understand that this relies on the idea that the conservation of energy, the most fundamental physical law we have besides entropy, doesn't work. Right? For the universe to expand like that via dark energy means that in some fashion, even if it's not really, it's more of a global rather than local effect, conservation of energy is broken. So it's not exactly something we just picked out of a hat one day. We fought tooth and nail. Everybody didn't like this theory. It's kind of one of those things where after we eliminate every other plausible option, that's the only thing that was left over at that time. And uh, things like slow light were definitely discussed, but we don't see any basis or reason for that to work. And a lot of the things we do look at say probably not. So...
1: I just realized that it's not January 31st.
0: No. Are you on the January 31st episode?
1: It's February 28th. It and is, that so. was why the live stream link was broke, because it says oh. January 31st. <laughs> well, wait, we're I, I'm kind of the, like a month behind here.
0: The ins and outs of the various policies. Now, wouldn't it really lines? have puzzled
1: everyone if it was February 29th? I mean, it could just get lost.
0: Every four years, yeah. No, um, you know, I'm glad oh. I don't have that February 29th birthday. I guess most people put on the March 4th.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Hmm. If we ever have a kid on Fe- on uh, February 29th, does that mean they only get old once every four years? They only get one birthday
0: every four years, yeah. Although I suppose that's be a really nice one at that point. If you're only giving them a birthday <laughs> every four years, that's like, well, I want a pony. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, my.
0: Say, so, well, it's too late for this year. You could ask me to get it in four years. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds sinister.
0: It's it's well you know it's all about effective parenting. Yeah.
1: Oh. Oh, well glad to know that ahead of time. Um Eric Johansson, thank you for your um super chat here. He says if environmental and political concerns are disregarded, do you think it's feasible to create nuclear rocket engines that can take off from the earth?
0: Um Thermal, I mean, nuclear thermal rockets. I, I'm open to the idea of that or even the uh, nuclear light bulb option. Um, I, I just kind of want to emphasize there's many different types of nuclear rockets. Um, one of them basically fires radioactive exhaust out the back end of the ship. I don't think that that will ever be legal. <laughs> and, and if that actually is legal, um, you're know, definitely in the post apocalyptic world kind of scenario. Uh, where you probably want to be getting yourself a mohawk and a dune buggy and, uh, and recipes for having guests for dinner. Uh, it's not going to be pleasant <laughs> um, war. But as for nuclear thermal rockets, maybe. I don't think that that's ever been an option people are too fond of. And you can use nuclear power to get us into space. Um, you know, once you're in space, you can use it all you want out of the orbit of the Earth. But near us, which you, you hook a bunch of nuclear reactors up to a mass drive or a long launch rail or an active support structure, and you power things that way, and then you have a much more contained place for your uranium, which is good to keep contained. I love nuclear power, but it's not something I want flying over my house.
1: (laughs) Speaking of flying over your house, I see somebody suggest maybe we need a space pony. I wonder if they do space seahorses.
0: We did an episode on space whales. Um, That's true. And and, and we were just talking about whale guns a moment ago. Um...
1: (laughs) Hey, hey, I see up on the screen, we've got uh, the Killing Stars, episode coming up on march 11th and we have a question on star lifting mm-hmm. from Mercurian Brockstone. they've got a very long name anyway he wants to know if i start star lifting the iron out of the sun how many earth mass planets can i fit in the earth's orbit and why is no one talking about orbital rings
0: uh orbital rings and this is the biggest one with that um well in terms of iron out of the sun let's hit that first There's about 27,000 Earths worth, give or take, of mass that's not hydrogen or helium in the Sun. Uh, Iron should be one of the more plentiful of those. But off the top of my head, I don't know if that would be like 100 Earth mass worth or 1,000 Earth mass worth. Iron's a fairly plentiful isotope. um, But I think oxygen would make up the lion's share of that mass. And then carbon, nitrogen, and then... I I can't remember how many orders of magnitude it drops off between oxygen and iron. But if you look up an elemental abundance chart, uh, just take 27,000 and then look at what oxygen is compared to iron and adjust accordingly. Um As to orbital rings, the reason why they're not getting talked about much is, one, they're, they're really not that well known yet, and two, um, it's kind of like saying that I want to go settle um, the Oregon in 1822. And someone says, let's build ourselves a big railroad out there and say, build a big railroad to where, what city, there are no cities out there, it's not even a village. Or someone saying, I would like to open up a, you know, international airport in the middle of Nome, Alaska. Say, well, there's only like two or three people who go there on a given day, we don't need an international airport. Orbital rings are like that. There's a very heavy capital investment and what they make cheap is mass motion of things in space uh we haven't ever prototyped one it's probably easier to do a lighter one we've already done a few right now we're not with really the miniaturization stage with the prototyping stage and i don't think we'd even want to be prototyping something like that till we were talking about moving at least a thousand people to and from space in a given year and similar amounts of cargo that's when you can start prototyping it.
1: matt van grisven says uh oh thank you matt for your super chat and he says have you ever seen a red dwarf and what do you think
0: have I ever seen a red dwarf, or have I seen the show Red Dwarf? Does it say?
1: Let's assume it's the show. Uh,
0: well, assume for the moment it was a, one of the stars. No one has seen a red dwarf because I don't think any are actually visible to the naked eye. <laughs> Maybe Parcspur if you got binoculars. So for the show Red Dwarf, I've seen the first couple episodes. Um, I don't know why, but every time I start watching Red Dwarf, I end up watching Blake Seven instead. I don't know which of the two qualifies is more dystopian, but when it comes to low-budget science fiction from the 70s and 80s from the BBC, they're both good.
1: (laughs) Uh, Johnny Wings, thank you for your super chat. He says, hey, Isaac, I love your channel. Can you tell us about your plans for the channel and any growth or developments, and what are your goals or plans for the coming year?
0: Hmm. Uh, Theoretically, we'll have to set a new studio up in a few months, um, and... I am hoping to find time to write a book uh, at some point this year, but that's been slow progress. Um, and I don't know if that's going to be on like mega structures or if it's going to be on Fourier Paradox or even if I'll get in my yard to just write something fictional. But uh... Not
1: just theoretically. If we're moving to a Blueberry Farm, then you have to have an office that accommodates, you know eating blueberries and talking on the channel <laughs> I don't know are their blueberries going to grow in space
0: uh, we actually did that in the co- so in colonizing series it's funny you know uh, the one that Sean asked me to do, at the conference in Mulch the episode he wants to show it being advanced having you a Q&A on is that colonizing series episode where we talk about blueberry farming
1: well see oh. they, they know that you're uh, wanting to get into farming and farming blueberries so they want to know if you can try them out on the moon
0: there we go <laughs> for a little bit of context when we was wondering on that uh sarah started a blueberry farm right like, before we got married and it's been semi on hiatus this year and we're starting it back up this year also <laughs> um let's see what, blueberry the pie here we again? come <laughs> so in terms of channel um we're studying a lot of stuff with nebula right now with standard uh for context standard is the uh guild network kind of thing that a bunch of us founded a few years back um and uh it's like real, real engineering's on it for instance uh but well, you've probably seen the bits of whenever we do curiosity stream we've been putting a lot in trying to expand that out that's been sucking up a lot of creative energy um to do like extended versions things like that for episodes um but I'd say probably the biggest one to try to do with the show is I'd like to do more live uh follow up segments on the videos at the end of the main ones um as we saw a couple of those of late, and not necessarily live, but you know at least recorded like this kind of situation, and it's everything's on hold while the plagues on, as we say. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, more live studio stuff, switching around, maybe starting some more work on the book, and probably trying to explore some of the options for uh, other formats, such as YouTube. So I do like YouTube. For those of us who are just talk about, like me and other channels, said, well, we're not too happy with YouTube. That's why well, we don't really want to be strictly dependent on YouTube as our only, you know, place to put our videos out at, and so there's been a lot of effort by a lot of us to explore alternative platforms, and that's taken up a lot of industry effort of, of the last year or so. Uh,
1: Ram Bam says that he and his dad used to watch uh, Blake Seven as well, long time ago.
0: Oh yeah, I think I might have showed you episode one of that, but it is it, the guy has a poem. Uh, that's the thing I, I everyone knows his first with Blake Seven is the main character uh, has a, a giant poem uh 70s show um but uh i guess we've time for one more question before we go to break
1: yeah well let's uh ask this question on life extension here we have will cherry thank you for your donation will he says what is the odds for life extension in the next 50 years and if it's not possible what are your thoughts on freezing or would we have cybernetics by then and uh,
0: cybernetics doesn't necessarily amount to life extension thank you by the way for the donations and I know a couple of people have done super chat hopefully it's coming up on the screen when people are doing that. it is but, uh, it's it, very we impressive even, yeah. we try to get to everyone's question that we can to one way or another but sorry for those who we're winning and skipped on that um, cybernetics does not necessarily offer life extension um, it probably would do a lot for then you get for the long life and good health You like if your heart's going bad it's nice to be able to use something cybernetic but I think that, technologically speaking, more often than not, what we use is you know, just a cloned human heart or reconditioned heart or a heart grown on top of a pig's heart. Um, everybody wants a pig's heart. <laughs> Such a strange thing to think that that's their closest relative for the purpose of organs. Um, anyway, um, freezing's an option if you think that the technology is possible. I would tend to feel like if we haven't made big progress on it in the next 50 years, it might be that it turns out to be a lot harder to crack than we're thinking, in which case freezing might not help as much as one would hope. But uh, I would say that I, I'd give us 50 50 odds of having very significant life extension. I put the Amazon on very significant because we already have life extension. Uh, the number of people who live over 90 compared to when I was a little kid, let alone a century ago, is ridiculous. The number of people who break 100 is is. Used to be one of those things where maybe one person in the town turned hundred. Uh, now it's you, there are multiple people around having that birthday every year. Um, all medicine, as I'll be like to I say all medicine is life extension. So, uh, but if we're not making fast enough progress for you and me, maybe freezing is an option. So right, we'll go ahead and go to break, and we'll be back in just a minute. So we'll be on break for a few minutes and it's a great time to get a drink and a snack or get more questions in for part 2 of our livestream. While we're waiting, a couple episodes back we were looking at Orbital bombardment, and I've gotten asked why we didn't spend much time talking about using asteroids as weapons. It's a very popular idea in science fiction, showing up in almost every major franchise like Star Trek, Star Wars, Stargate, Babylon 5, and many more, including most recently the stealth asteroid attack we see play out in Season 5 of The Expanse. However, we didn't focus on it too much in the episode and partially it's because we've looked at asteroids before, in our Asteroid Defense episode last year, but mostly because asteroids are not very good weapons. We could probably do an entire episode on the topic and maybe will at some point, but let's just detail the key bits during our break. First, any spacefaring civilization where folks can move around asteroids, it's one where they can also move around and place a lot of detection gear too. Almost every trick for hiding actions in space relies on either weaker detection gear or it all being at one single spot. If you want to give an asteroid a shove, one that could usefully damage Earth, then you're generally talking about having to give something in the vicinity of a trillion kilograms a change of velocity of a kilometer a second, and that would be a fairly modest asteroid of less than a kilometer across that just happened to be a near-Earth orbital path so that it only need a minor shove. That's exactly the sort of asteroid folks most closely would monitor too, for a variety of reasons, not least being collision concerns. So the kinetic energy needed to shift a trillion kilograms a kilometer per second is on an order of a billion billion joules. That's comparable to a couple hundred hydrogen bombs, and again that's assuming we're moving a relatively modest sized asteroid with a very precision and efficient push. This is not something you could do very stealthily, but the usual notion is that you'd aim your rocket flame in the shadow of the asteroid from whoever was looking at it, pointing away from the planet Earth for instance. Now a rocket flame that big is still going to get seen, as is a giant cone. This is literally what a comet is, but even if we assume it hid in the asteroid's shadow, it's only from that one angle, and the first and most obvious place to put your detection gear is out at places far from Earth able to watch those other angles. I should also note that while it's essentially a comet, it's a very bright one at that. Comets are just the dust and ice melting off a big icy rock, not a much more powerful rocket flame trying to seriously change its trajectory. The other thing to keep in mind is that in a spacefaring civilization, asteroids are seen as wandering money, someone owns them, especially the metallic ones considered ideal for use as a weapon. They are going to want to track the things and they are going to be watching for obvious tricks like someone grabbing the transponder they left on the surface of the asteroid and detaching it, not for fear of someone using it as a weapon, but an attempt to steal the asteroid. So hard physical checks by radar and telescope should be fairly common. Fundamentally we want to use an asteroid as a weapon because it's dropping a mountain on someone with energy releases that exceed nuclear bombs. And we have to remember that means trying to move a mountain without anyone noticing, while using energy releases equivalent to nuclear bombs to do it. It's not subtle, and it's not something a spacefaring civilization is going to ignore. A mountain, full of money, that is not where it's supposed to be is going to result in folks looking for it with a lot of enthusiasm and determination, and the faster you want to move one the bigger the noise it will make, so to speak. Hence, they don't make for very good weapons. We'll get back to our show in just a moment, but I want to thank everyone for their continued support on Patreon and all the wonderful episode ideas we had there in our recent poll, and if you'd like to help support the show you can do so on Patreon or by going to the Donate tab on our website, IsaacArthur.net. And now, back to our show. Alright, and we're back. Um, And by the way, for those who have seen it it says January 31, I guess it didn't get updated, Uh, we're kind of adjusting to this new system for stream Labs obs uh we were trying to go by Streamlabs obs not its other acronyms slobs is the new live streaming software ones using and i'm getting kind of used to it so uh, back to your questions
1: well flax decided he wanted to make an appearance <laughs> yeah. um so we have a, a question here from twilight mists thank you for the super chat twilight and they say i love your channel You've repeatedly said that the IR signature of a Dyson swarm can't be hidden, but hypothetically, couldn't you direct all of that energy into a shell of black holes?
0: I'm almost wondering if I should just put him up on my lap so he's not walking around by the tripod. Um, This has been happening a lot. I don't know if you even noticed when when I had David swing the camera around last time, I had the clever thought to put a cat door into my office so my cats wouldn't be scratching at my door to get in when they wanted in, and... Now they can just kind of walk in freely. All they I, want. I think
1: he's going to sit yeah. there and watch because he's very interested in your answer to the question about yeah. <laughs> whether or not you could direct the energy into the shell of a black hole. Hey, how come you put me on the screen? <laughs>
0: You're not on the screen. This is. It just popped giant up with me. Cat. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is time lag on your side. So this is Flex. All right, talking about black holes real quick. Um, If you try to direct energy into a black hole, it's obviously going to go in there. I think what people tend to forget is that a black hole is not just something that sucks up random energy. When a photon, for instance, is going into a black hole, if it starts off infrared, it's not going to arrive infrared. It's going to be blue shifting the whole way. We do not know for certain that black holes don't violate the laws of thermodynamics, but we tend to assume that they do not. The major reason why we don't say for sure is we can't absolutely rule it out yet. So it's not really one of those things where we think they might violate thermodynamics so much as we're not 100% positive that they do not. Um, everything in nature should give off radiation. Black holes give off radiation in their own way. Um, and the idea is, can I take all that radiation and can I bounce it down into a black hole? Hypothetically, yeah, you could maybe be able to do that. You could maybe surround your civilization with infrared reflective mirrors that are parabolic dishes that just bounce all the light down into a black hole, into a sequence of mirrors and lenses, you're not going to hide yourself completely doing something like that, and you're not going to believe that you would. Right? That is not a walking way to hide yourself because that's not going to hide you from anyone as big as you all. Right? They will be able to still see the various little bits of that leaking out from that. Uh, and it's not going to be an energy efficient process that lets you reuse that energy either. But there may be some aspects of black holes that kind of let us get around the laws of thermodynamics, but probably not. It's still, a popular idea for why that might be the case, though. It doesn't hide you gravitationally either.
1: The Don Givon says, Could we colonize pulsar planets or planets? Planets orbiting a black hole.
0: Planets. Black hole planets, I guess that would be. It. Can we colonize planets that are orbiting a black hole or a pulsar? I noticed the flax got away. He doesn't like being on the camera, so then he's gonna go leave, maybe. <laughs> There was no reason why you couldn't colonize a planet that was around a black hole or a pulse hole, um, but you gotta keep in mind these things tend to be fairly radioactive objects. When a supernova goes off, it's gonna wreck all the planets that are actually in the habitable zone. There might be some remnants left over, or the bigger ones that'll be outweighs, because supernovas are very powerful, but planets are held together pretty good, and it's got to death star everything. Um whatever's left over is not very bright. Poles stars are nowhere near bright as bright the, as, as the weakest of normal stars. Right? And black holes are obviously not very bright at all. So these planets are going to be frozen and hit by gamma radiation every time a random particle falls by them. They're not places you really want to be thinking about colonizing a planet but there's no reason you couldn't terraform them if you really, really wanted to. You just got to be wanting to shield them a lot. Um, more likely, you take them apart, use a lot of them for radiation shielding, and live inside artificial habitats that you made out of them.
1: Igor Briskin says, what is the future of salt water, like nuclear isotope-infused water engines, in the next 50 years?
0: You know, when it comes to anything involving nuclear fission, I, I, I don't even like to kind of guess about what its developmental use on Earth is going to be. Because, first, you've got that, you've got two types of resistance to it, the irrational and the rational kind. Some folks are a little too resistant to it for the wrong reasons, but they're, you know, they're well inside the zone of what's legitimate and so on, and other people who are just convinced it's going to kill them, period, no matter how safe we make it. I never know how much to factor that latter category into guessing how popular nuclear is going to get. Um, So we might make one that's really efficient, really good, uh, has no carbon footprint, is a tenth the price of normal electricity, and people still won't use it. I, I don't know. Um, we also have to keep in mind that on the more rational side of things, it's entirely possible we might just get a bit of power supply. Um, you know, you can't beat nuclear, but then the sun's nuclear, so you can't really beat a cheap mirror and some solar panels, potentially, either. Uh, I do think there's a very big role that nuclear can be in, whether we're talking small modular reactors, (SMRs) or any other variations, too. Um, but how that will get filled up in the next 50 years is just... Your guess is as good as mine.
1: We have another question here from Matt333. What kind of habitable exoplanet would be more suitable to humans? A smaller one with, oh, I'm assuming this oxygen, 7 to 1 Earth mass, or a super-Earth with 3 to 4 times the mass of Earth? And can you explain this, please?
0: Um, okay, so... The idea being here, are we talking about a planet that's maybe 70 to 100% of Earth's mass versus a super-Earth that's three or four times the mass of Earth? Um, we're going to find a lot of planets out there that are very close to Earth's mass, but most of them are not going to be, right? So the question is, is something that's lighter than Venus but heavier than Mars more habitable than something that's three or four times as massive as Earth? Um, and then it kind of depends on what you mean by habitable I would guess that it's not going to take a lot of effort to terraform a super Earth that's actually very oceanic, if it's got land at all. And then doesn't have to have land. You can that's you could have submarine extraction of resources and people living in giant ships. Um, But uh, I would say that you probably have an easier time terraforming one that was the 7.7 to 1 Earth mass region, just because it's harder to maintain an atmosphere in the long run there. But in the long run, uh, you're talking millions and millions of years. And if you can terraform it in you know, tens of thousands of years, then you can replace this atmosphere every few million years if you need to. So I would say probably easier to set up and terraform a civilization on a planet that's a little bit less massive than Earth than when it's three or four times as massive.
1: We have a super chat here from Joachim Heatman. How heavy can a space station become before it affects Earth like a tidal water? And what technologies do we currently lack to start mining space? Thanks.
0: Can you give that to me one more time?
1: (laughs) He said, how heavy can a space station become before it affects the Earth like a tidal water?
0: Uh, That's actually a decent enough question because it depends on how much. Um, Tidal forces... The moon obviously has a pretty big effect on us, but to have the same gravitational force as the moon has, an object that's 200 miles away as opposed to 200,000, in the case of the moon, or you know, kilometers, uh, would need a millionth of mass to be pulling the same force, because it's a thousandth of the distance. That's not quite how tidal forces work. It's not quite inverse square, but think of it just straight gravitational force for the moment. And say, wow, something that's a millionth of mass of the moon that's in orbit, in low Earth orbit, would have quite a lot of tidal force. And say, well, was an O'Neill cylinder a millionth the mass of the moon? Well, that's a great question. Um, the moon's mass is around 10 to the 23rd kilograms, right? Or around 10 to the 20th tons. We usually think of a O'Neill station as being, you know, in the low billions of tons. So you're talking about an order of magnitude difference there of, uh, what, 100 billion? So a McKendree cylinder, the, the big daddy of the O'Neill cylinder... Probably would begin to have a noticeable effect on Earth if it was in low to medium orbit, but still pretty minimal. Um, And then it depends on how thick it is, but McCandrey cylinder mass to have any real effect.
1: Gulagus the new Gulag says Isaac, do you have backup copies of all your videos? I would hate for the algorithm to shut you down and lose all of that content forever. This must be in reference to your comment on YouTube earlier.
0: Um, I think we're actually on BitChain, but uh, I know of at least three or four audience members who do, or at least have mentioned in the past, they downloaded every video and, and kept a copy around. Um, I do have copies probably of every video. Uh, I have three or four versions of some of them in some cases, because um, I tend to be bad about purging the uh, edit versions. Like, typically these videos, one of reasons they can come out a couple of days early on Nebula is they come out a week to two weeks early uh, for our... our crew good to see them up on youtube as unlisted videos and we go through and find all the typos and then I said if I want to fix the typos like there's a typo in next week's video and one single typo with two letters over and I'm thinking I'm not sure if I care enough to spend three hours fixing that one typo um but uh so and your wife who versions. reads and
1: edits things cringes, yeah, every, typo Keith, every typo is worth fixing, every
0: typo. Keith Blockus and Jerry Gordon, he both probably recognize as editors, they tend to be the ones who catch all the typos on the videos, and if there's a lot of them, or to go back and change something else, I'll go fix them, but in this case, it's like if it's a missing period or two letters rearranged, I tend to be a bit more relaxed, but there's copies of pretty much every video out there, if one or two of gotten lost, the scripts are out there. I, I know it sounds weird, but if you're the one who's actually making episodes or making a series or making a book, you tend to be a lot less attached to the originals than a lot of your audience is because, to you, they all have three or four different draft versions. Uh, But, yes, there's backups. Don't worry about it.
1: Dan the Warlock. Hey, I was so impressed by your video on Hive Minds. I was wondering about if it could be possible to even create one with technology. And if, yes, humanity would be truly united, correct?
0: That's such an interesting way of calling it United. Uh, uh, If you have, I mean, if we're talking like a Borg style hive mind from Star Trek, then that's no unity any of us really want to be part of. Um, I always think of like the example of Gaia from Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, where it's a planet wide hive mind where it's not just the people, it's like the animals, and even to a limited degree, the plants and the rocks. And, um,. I don't want to be part of one. The main character for that, Golden Chirise, doesn't want to be part of one either. Um, I don't know why anyone would want to be part of a, a hive mind of that variety. But as to a networked intelligence, that's still different. We are already networked intelligence to a limited degree. It just depends on how, you know, that line between your person and somebody else's person is going to get employed. Would we be unified? I suppose so. Um, that's not necessarily a good thing, though. <laughs> it depends on how it's done.
1: Suit Kumar says, can we colonize globular cu- clusters?
0: Um, there's no reason why we couldn't, but the, you're getting kind of hesitant to really say at that point that you'd want to do natural planets. Uh, for those who don't know, a globular cluster is usually a, a group of older stars, but it's pretty packed. So the key thing there is it's very packed with stars. They're, you know, It's not spacing every four light years. It might be spacing every four light months or even less. Um, they are they are old, big systems full of light. Um, I don't know that I want be putting planets there, especially since I of them are going red giant. In the case of red globular clusters, um, could you actually fill the area out with things like space habitats? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the biggest trick is planets are always be a little bit sensitive to radiation, lighting beyond what you'd have for if I have a meter thick of dot steel and lead treat me in it because I'm inside a space habitat. So yes. But probably not the place you want to be tail forming plants a lot.
1: The game crasher, the master gamer, says, Have you heard of the channel Astronauts X? Apparently, they're saying that essentially faster than light travel is not only possible, but necessary for the universe to function.
0: Um, I haven't heard of their channel, um, so I don't know what they actually said on that. For all I know, they're making a reference that you actually. well. Uh, we'd say fast light travel is impossible. And then we turn around and say that almost everything in the universe that we can see is moving away from us faster than the speed of light. And say, so that's interesting. So you can't go faster than light, but almost everything in the universe is going away from us faster than light. So, well, yes, that's how that whole expansion of the universe thing works. Um, so they might be talking about in that kind of context. Otherwise, I, I don't know. It might be some new theory they're familiar with. I don't know how you'd ever get fast light travel between two places to work like that, though. Um, there's a lot of theories. Hmm. They also need to rely on things that don't exist, like negative matter, which, again, negative matter looks great on people, but so does a negative bucket of water, a negative $1 bill, things like that. I don't know how you would hand people these things. How do you hand somebody a negative gallon of water, or a negative liter, or a negative pound?
1: So if we do develop faster than light travel, Brian wants to know if we could travel far enough away from our planet to look back and witness every single event in history at real time.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you can do this impossible thing, then you have the ability to do that. Although I should point out that it's really hard to see things on planets far away. Uh, keep in mind, all spy satellites are not on the moon. You can't see the surface of the moon. You can't see the moon lander uh, with the biggest telescopes we have on this planet. All spy satellites are like 100 miles up in the air. Uh, 100, 200 kilometers, right? 160 kilometers, I suppose, in that case. Um, they're not high. They're not far away. They are a thousand times closer to us than the moon is. Alternatively, if you want to see the history of the Earth from where the moon is, that's like a half, second and a half ago. One and a half seconds back one time. Right? You want to see four light years away, you're talking about being able to see the detail of a human on the surface of a planet through the clouds, through all the distortion, through all the other things, with a telescope four light years away. Then you'd be able to talk about a telescope that has actually got a lens bigger than a planet. And we discussed those options in mega telescopes, but uh, that still took you four light years back you probably have pretty good history of recording by the time you're, you know, building planet-sized telescopes, so what you mean is, I want to see 100,000 years back or a million light years back, and I say, okay, then you need to be talking about building telescopes who have lenses bigger than galaxies in many cases, and I don't think that you'd really be able to see even then. This is not something you should be able to pull off, but it's theoretically possible if you can do those two impossible things.
1: <laughs> Patrick McHarg says, over time, I've had time to think about the colonization of space via O'Neill cylinders and the like, and he feels that it's a better option for colonizing planets, especially regarding the availability of resources. You've touched on this a little bit before, but would you like to add any comments?
0: Um, I myself, mean, it's, it's, that's, I agree. I think there's always going to be desire for some people to have the classic physical planet. Uh, I think there'll be people who want to do shell worlds too, and there's room for that. You know, artificial shell worlds. Oh, definitely a possibility of using if you can either control dark matter or you just have a lot of hydrogen you want to store around because the shell wall doesn't use up that much mass of the rocky, hard, expensive kind. And you do want to be storing mass around, so why not take advantage of it? You know, if your economy runs on black hole power sources, you might as well stick a planet around it. It makes it easier to gorge your vault. Uh, and black holes make very good vaults. Um, but uh, as to why you would ever colonize or terraform a planet, people will i don't doubt that but it's a good way to stake a claim to it because what you're really doing I me mean, in this case is saying i'm landing on this planet that represents like one percent of the available mass in the solar system that's mine and if you guys want it you have to you know take it from our civilization so a, not a bad position to be in from an economic or political perspective i suppose but um it's always gonna be easier to do it on your soda always gonna be a lot mass cheaper too
1: Hidden says, how does location within a galaxy affect star or planet formation, matter distribution, and more broadly, the likelihood of intelligent life?
0: How does star formation...
1: Location within oh. a galaxy affect star or planet formation, matter distribution, and more broadly, the likelihood of intelligent life?
0: There's still a lot of debate about exactly what the metallicity of the early galaxy looked like and what its distribution is, but the. The closer you are to the center of the galaxy, the younger the stuff tends to be, the further out you are, the older it tends to be, on average, very loosely speaking. This does not mean stars are are formed in the center of the galaxy and work their way out. Uh, metallicity wise the more supernovas you have in the area, the more recently that is, the higher the concentration of metallic objects. But for the most part, uh, other than the very early universe, which you don't have a good image for yet, the first four or five billion years... You really should have had the option to have rocky planets of Earth mass almost anywhere in the galaxy. Some places obviously more distributed than others, and that one you would have to talk to an astronomer on because I do not know what the current models were saying about uh, metallicity of of systems based on distance or, or nebula clusters of that period. So Pulsar, Al Espolosa.
1: Okay, well, speaking of pulsar, Albert has a question. Would non-carbon life forms be able to survive on a pulsar planet? And if so, what type of biochemistry would be best suited to survive the heavy radiation? Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, um, hmm. I can't answer the first question because we don't know what non-carbon-based life actually looks like. So we couldn't say that it could live there or couldn't live there. Um, Nothing should like radiation that's based on chemistry. So, we're talking about non carbon based life, we're still assuming chemistry. There's presumably certain chemistries that would be a little bit more resistant to radiation. But if it's ionizing radiation, if it's your hard UV, your X ray, or your, your gamma, the stuff you get off of pulsars, it's going to rip molecules apart. It's going to just damage anything sophisticated based on chemistry. After that, it's hard to say. You know, maybe something that was silicon-based but didn't actually really go for chemistry so much as a crystal instructor or a semiconductor instructor. They might be able to do it. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, so chemistry-wise, there really shouldn't be a set that's really more more well-suited to those kind of systems. It just shouldn't be a place you'd expect life to be able to evolve using chemistry.
1: DJ Brower wants to know what your thoughts on interplanetary cyclers and how feasible they would be in the next 30 years. Do oh, you feasible
0: right have... now. Um, okay, you
1: know... uh, as a part of that, <laughs> do you have thoughts on Elon Musk and his one million people on Mars by 2050?
0: I love that, man. He's uh, Every time I think he's got an idea that's completely crazy, that's the one that works out. Um, I have a personal war where Elon Musk is concerned that dates back to me being one of the people who thought SpaceX was never going to go anywhere. Uh, I don't take for given that Elon Musk can pull things off, because he fails more often than he succeeds, and things like this. Uh, and yet he has a success ratio that uh, even Tom Edison would find impressive. Um, so, he might be able to pull that off. I
1: don't Might's know. a big point, though, because Mr. Dodo <laughs> well, has a good point here. He yeah. says, considering that we don't have a permanent base on the next rock along from us, the moon, what are the chances of us colonizing another planet or interstellar within the next 1,000 generations?
0: We could colonize Mars in this decade if we wanted to bad enough and we're willing to throw enough money at it and we're willing to take some risks with using some prototype engines. Right? It's it's It can be done. Um, we could set one up on the moon, too, if you were willing to just throw money at it. Um, and the thing is, why would you need a million people there, though? If you're just trying to do the get your eggs out of one basket scenario, you can do that with a thousand people and an awful lot of freezers full of... Uh, um, genetic material <laughs> and, uh, I mean I would love to be around here in 2050 when I guess I'd be what 70 I would love to be here in 2050 and say yeah I couldn't believe it but Musk was right and there's a million people on, on Mars. Um, so we
1: have another question related, related to that million people on Mars. <laughs> someone says uh, wouldn't that be death by gravity?
0: We don't know. that, <laughs> Or Mars by lack writing. of gravity. Yeah. I mean, see our Life on Low Gravity Planets episode or the more recent Zero Gravity Civilizations episode. Is, but what we discussed there is we don't know what low gravity does to people. We have, just don't know. We know what zero gravity or microgravity does to people, um, but we've never put people in low gravity with a, with exactly 12 exceptions, right? We've had 12 men who walked on the moon for three days or so each, right? Uh, Booking on those trips, they were undergoing high acceleration and no gravity, Right. So for the three days of low gravity each of those experienced, we have no data because it was bookended by zero gravity and high acceleration gravity and re-entry. And they were in perfect health, and it was three days. We do not know that 12% gravity like the moon has is in any way home for the humans. We think it probably is not healthy, but we don't know. And there's a lot of guesswork on that. Mars is three times higher gravity, and a little under half what we have. That might turn out to be perfectly fine. It might be one of those things where you don't even really need to do extra exercise. But we would expect it to be causing some fluid issues, causing some damage to bone structure from density. But it might not be anything that we can't easily fix.
1: So Thunder Blitz says, if we found a way to produce wormholes cheaply, could a Type 3 civilization exist by reducing data travel time? Sure.
0: Uh (laughs) I Uh, getting back to the wormhole thing, if you can make Stargate-style wormholes, um, then yes, you could absolutely run yourself a galactic empire. Um, you know, see some examples like well, like Stargate or like Peter Hamilton's Commonwealth Saga, um, for just a few examples of really good wormhole-based galaxy-wide civilizations. Uh, but there's a galaxy, there's a wormhole in science fiction, which is a flat disk that you can walk through and step out to the other side of the universe and then there's a wormhole in actual mathematical modeling, which is something that weighs several hundred solar masses. That, that's the basic wormhole of the original model. It weighed more than several hundred stars stuffed together, and that was making a gateway big enough for a poor ship to get through. We have some concepts where you might be able to do it with like a single Jovian mass, and some others that full around with negative mass that might let you do a bit less than that, but these are still gigantic things. And um, they, they are not necessarily going to, even you need to get them to walk, really be ideal for casual commerce and communication.
1: I was just reading through some of the comments here. We have uh, Al Gorn Dianza says, Isaac Arthur, love the channel. It makes me happy seeing you and your wife working together. It's so cute. Thank you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> when I, I think... actually remember to switch the camera to my wife, uh, it's uh, probably house. <laughs> <else. laughs> um.
1: That wasn't a question. That was a comment. It
0: was just a comment. Yeah. It's awesome.
1: I, I do have a couple more questions here, though, right before we sign off for the afternoon. I we, should, we should soon. <laughs> okay. Mr. Kavinsky says Hey, Arthur, if humanity and aliens come to blows, wouldn't the Oort uh, be perfect spot for them to gather resources and strength, maybe even weaponize the asteroids that barely pass by the Earth?
0: The Oort. The Oort Cloud?
1: O O R T. Oort Cloud. Well, they don't say cloud, but that probably is what they meant.
0: Um, uh, If aliens were going to attack us, the Oort cloud would be a perfect place for them to land if they were trying to be stealthy about it. Um, The problem is right now, if aliens were coming to the system and they wanted to attack us, it's not where they would stop, it's where they would dump their garbage out. Um, If you're traveling between solar systems at any fraction of the speed of light, the best way to deal with a hostile planet that you're traveling to is to slow down slightly right after you keep your garbage out the airlock in the direction of that planet and then wait patiently before the planet just has the surface get obliterated by the garbage you kicked out to the side then you can invade um the oil cloud would be a good place to sneak a little self-opening item in you could go hide inside the ice where it'd be fairly cool and eat the inside of a lot of comets, a lot of cometary bodies things like that build you up a nice size fleet and then you could rain steel down on the uh, the planet below uh, inside that solar system, so it's not a bad place to go, because we would have problems seen there. Uh, so we got time for another question?
1: Alright. We're going to end with one from Atlas. He says, Isaac, could Batman beat the Predator in a fight?
0: I mean, Batman beat Superman in a fight. <laughs> and Arnold Schwarzenegger... Well, I mean, actually, I don't think it would be fair to say Snake Schwarzenegger beat the Predator in a fight. Uh, that was kind of more like survived a fight with the Predator um I would say Batman would, would beat the predator yes um, because oh sports name was awesome but the, the Predator is you know, Batman's cool um yes Batman would win <laughs> so, there we have an official <laughs> on that note we'll go ahead and sign off for today we will see y'all on Thursday thank you so much for joining us good night so that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord or our website, IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you Thursday.